Father, touch my mind and my tongue, their ears and their heart, for your glory and for our satisfaction, our joy in hearing you, O God, speak. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This is the second time in my, my tenure with you as a pastor that uh, we've watched the Piper video, God wrote a book, and I've probably watched it 10 times for every time you've seen it. I love it. One of the reasons that we love the Bible is because it clearly shows us that God is working with a plan. We live in a culture that says there is no great story. The, the new term for that is meta-narrative. There's no big from beginning to end story that's connecting us from our birth to death and beyond. And it's sad thinking, it's wrong thinking, because the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand. This is why we love the Bible. It's, it's almost like if you were to buy a, a box of a, a thousand uh, puzzle piece and uh, take it on vacation with you, the summer beach trip, or maybe during a rainy day, a snowy day, and you're going to put together how much fun it is to look at the cover of your puzzle first to see what is it like when it's finished, and then you can start putting it together. So all the little pieces of life don't make sense and they're painful and all that, but when you see through the lens of the Bible what God is doing from beginning to end, the whole pieces of life, where it's headed, what we're supposed to do in the meantime, and where we came from. You know, if you look at all the world religions, the two primary ones, I would say Hinduism and Islam, there's just no real main story with Hinduism. They don't even really have a book. There's just lots of epic stories of giant gods battling and maybe this God would be supreme here, this God would be supreme here. But there's not a unifying thread that ties any of these stories together. And the same with Islam. If you read the Quran, there's lots of different stories and there's lots of stories of, of courageous imams that did this in this particular part of history. But there's not a thread, no linear from here to there in, even in the Quran. And yet the Bible tells one story. And you can look on the front of your brochure. Somebody asked me, oh, are we going to a church with bulletins? No. But we are having a fill-in-the-blank today. And so at the front of your, the front of your brochure today, and if you don't, don't have one right in front of you, there is someone, there's one somewhere and there's pens in the uh, seat pockets uh, or either you know, in front of you or if you're on the front row behind you. But here's the, the Old Testament. Is this, this is the big picture of the Bible. If you want to know, you came here, I don't know what the Bible's about. You're going to know it in two sentences now. The Old Testament is the story of a nation, and the New Testament is the story of a man. And the purpose of the nation was to bring the man into the world. And the purpose of the man coming into the world was to bring us into relationship with the Father God who sent him, or we could say it like this, not on your outline, I think I confused the first service a little bit, if, if something's in a lighter or a yellow print, it's not in your brochure, it's just something I put on PowerPoint. Here's one of those situations, God came to our place that we might go to his place. That's why I love, on the front cover of your brochure today, or of your pamphlet, I love the quote by John 
Uh, John Wesley at the, at the bottom of it, not on PowerPoint. Don't need it there. Let's just read, I'll just read it to you. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has written it down in a book. Give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. So I told you on the front cover, if you want to know what's the Bible about, Old Testament, New Testament, tells story of a nation bringing into the world a man. Now, if you want to go a little bit broader, you can go to nine sections on the back. Turn to the back of your brochure, the back of your pamphlet. The Bible is further divided into nine sections within the Old and New Testament. And one of the coolest ways to remember how the Old Testament is divided is just through five numbers. Uh, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Let's say that together. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. That's 39 books of the Old Testament, and now you've got them. So a minute ago, you didn't come in here, you didn't know what the Bible's about. Now you know it's two stories, old and new, Israel, Jesus. And now you know the old is 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Below the numbers that you're filling in there, I explain just a little bit about what those divisions are about. The first division of five books is about the law. This is where God introduces himself in the first five books of the Bible, where he says, I am God, there is no other. And this is how I am to be worshipped. You know, again, we live in a culture that says there are no absolutes. No absolute right, no absolute wrong. Well, I can think of about ten absolutes within the law called the Ten Commandments. Not the Ten Suggestions, but the Ten Commandments. Absolutes. Do these things and live. You know, in essence, we really never break God's laws so much as we break ourselves in trying to break God's laws. We just experience lots of pain by resisting the law of God. The next section on the back, again, of, it goes from five books to uh, 12 books are the, are the history books. And, and this is simply mankind, you and me, struggling to obey God. This is the story of God's nation struggling to love Him. Struggling to believe him. And you're, listen, when you read the Bible, you need to read it in such a way that you see yourself on every page because you are there. So we enjoy the history section of the Bible because it it talks about all of our struggles of belief and obedience. Then the poetry section, the next section, so it's 512 and then 5, poetry. These are the books that we love because you feel like somebody you know wrote them. Maybe you. They're the, the, the prayers that come out of the poetry section are a prayers, prayers of an agonizing heart. And the wisdom that comes out of the poetry section, it almost sounds like you're, you're sitting down with an old man, a believer, solid, like a grandfather at the end of life, looking back and saying, these are the principles that I found out to be true. They work every time. Then the final two sections of, of, of the Old Testament, <clears throat> major and minor prophets, And we say there are five major prophets because we group Lamentations with Jeremiah for that fifth major prophet. But they talk about judgment and hope. And the only reason in any of these minor prophets and major prophets there's hope is that it's the promise of Christ coming to make a new world. You take that away from this meta-narrative, and I don't know of anything that I could say today that's hopeful. Christ is coming to make a new world. So now we come at the bottom of the brochure on the back page, the New Testament. And it also can be remembered with a very cool little <clears throat> rhythmic <clears throat> set of numbers, 4-1-21-1. You can write those down, 4-1-21-1. One, one, one. 
So, you know, you didn't know the Old Testament a minute ago. How can I remember all of the Old Testament? 512, 5512. Now, the New Testament, 41211. And the first four of, those, of that little rhythm are, are, we call it biography. It's the story of Jesus Christ from four different perspectives. As if somebody were watching an accident from four different angles. They all have a little slant on how they saw, saw the event. Twelve, the, one would be history. We had a history section in the Old Testament. We got a history section in the New Testament. The history section in the New Testament is a biography of the early church. How did the church get started? That's the one. One book of Acts. Then 21. These are exciting letters. Um, every so often when we make changes here, like when we went to two services, I wrote all of you a letter. It did not find its way into the Bible, so it may have not been that good. But just think about the letters that were written to, they were written to real life New Testament Christians gathering in local churches in specific cities. They're going through times of oppression, times of temptation. That's why we love the 21 letters of the New Testament. It's real life. How do you make this stuff work in a local church in a real city? And then the last section of the New Testament, we call it the Apocalypse. It's the book of Revelation. It tells the future. <clears throat> what's going to happen, and the reason why we call it the apocalypse, it's used uh, in the Greek New Testament, that word apocalypto, which means the unveiling, the revealing, the uncovering of, of the future. Now, what I love about <clears throat> the connection between the old and the new, I told you last week that the Bible was written, it was God's breath, but he breathed into the minds of 40 people. Now, what makes it interesting is these 40 writers of Bible they wrote over a period of 1,500 years, and it comes out to be one story. That's amazing. Just think today, if I started writing a story, and I'm gonna write, I write, and then I hand it off to somebody, and then they're going to finish my story, but I'm dead, they got to finish my story. They write, and they hand it off to 38 more people down the line, and it takes 1,500 years for the whole story to be complete. And this one single thread throughout that story, that is a miracle. So the miracle of the Bible is one story, 40 people over 1,500 years. And the way that we see the brilliance of the story writers is when you come to the New Testament, every 23 verses in the New Testament, they quote the Old Testament. It's how much they're writing together to form one story. How much the new relies upon the old, how much the old looks forward to the new. So the Old Testament begins in a garden. How does the New Testament end? In a garden. The Old Testament begins with a wedding. How does the New Testament end? With a wedding. The whole story of the Bible is God bringing his people to that wedding, to that feast, to that party, to that house, to that home. And when you read the Bible many times, many chapters, many events, you say to yourself, they're not going to make it. A lot of times it's self-destructive behavior. They're not getting home. They're not getting to the party. Or sometimes it's the enemy who's coming in attacking them, and you say, it's over. And then you see, and you keep reading, on the next page, God has an answer for the crisis of this page. And the theme of all of it is that God has always had a people. And he always will, and he's going to get them home. And the cool thing about the theme of these 66 books of the Bible is that God 
rescues these people when they're too weak to rescue themselves. He always gives them something they cannot earn and do not deserve. And He never stops acting that way toward them. It's always grace. God giving them something they cannot earn and do not deserve. That's the single thread through all the 66 books of the Bible. Now let's go inside to the inner pages of your bulletin, handout, flyer. <clears throat> so here we are with creation. So that's the first blank and everything from nothing will be our little uh, way to memorize or to help us understand what's going on in creation. Everything from nothing. Probably the greatest five words in literature, in the beginning, God created. Does that blow you away? Hebrew word, bara, to speak into existence. Why don't you try that right now? Just go ahead and speak a car to existence. I want a Beamer. Just speak anything. Into, I want a donut. Just bring it down. I want a donut. And just think, God said bara, and look what happens. Galaxies, bara. Mountains, rivers, bara. From nothing, this mountain. Bara, butterflies. Everything from nothing. And all of it shows his splendor and his glory. Second major division, or, or this as we go into these further divisions of the Old Testament, the entrance of sin. We'll call that the great mistake. The entrance of sin, the great mistake. How awful Adam and Eve must have felt, and the reason why they, know they, they felt awful, we know how they felt right after you commit a sin. Word comes out of your mouth, whatever, or the deed is done, and you're feeling so guilty. And you know the one thing you can't do? At that moment, you can't take it back. There are no mulligans in life. Like, you did it, and you feel guilty. Just think about Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They ate from the tree that he said, not from that tree, and they ate. And, and they brought such destruction into the world. There's Adam and Eve in the beautiful Garden of Eden, and they turned Eden into the war fields of, of Syria. Because of their disobedience, evil and anger have spread throughout all of the world. Somebody asked me this week, one of our students said, you know, do you believe in original sin? That's the concept that Adam's sin, even before I was born, got into me. So I was guilty with Adam, and they said, you know, how do you feel about that? Well, I said, I know it's true because I know that this is how you can really understand original sin. That, you know, when Adam sinned, I sinned. What it really means is this. If a mother is taking drugs while she's pregnant, doing cocaine, let's say, that baby is probably going to be born with uh, an addiction. That baby didn't do anything, but it inherited the mother's um, drug problem. So when Adam sinned, Sin came into his genetic being so that every man born after him is born with the disease. So I was born with the disease of sin, and then I showed everybody how well I could do sin by acting out. So I am born with sin, and then I commit sin. And that's why we love, in the book of Genesis, 
As early as we see this infection with sin, we also see this promise of a Savior. Genesis 3.15, it's called a proto-euangelion. Our little red books that you see around here, we call them euangelion because they mean the good news or the gospel. Well, the proto-euangelion, that's just a theological term. It's not in the Bible. But it means the first gospel. The first time we see gospel hope in all of the scripture is Genesis 3.15 where God is talking to Satan. And he says to him, some man at some point in the future is going to bruise your head. You have bitten his heel, Satan. He is going to bruise your head. It's called the proto-euangelion. The first time that we see that Satan and evil will one day be defeated by a certain man coming in the world. The next um, fill-in-the-blank for you is the promise to Abraham, and we'll call this a worldwide birth announcement. All of us receive birth announcements from friends, don't we? I guess my daughter will be sending some out uh, soon or sometime, and, and uh, we're so happy to have her with us this weekend because last night she, she, she made me rub my hands together so it wouldn't be so freezing cold, and then I put my hand on her stomach, and I felt little baby wells kick so we're gonna have i have a grandbaby and and so we're gonna have an announce we'll tell people but we'll probably not say this which was said to abraham in genesis 12 this baby will be for the blessing of the world <laughs> i don't think anybody thinks their child is going to be a worldwide blessing i don't know maybe on facebook there are some people who think their children are worldwide blessings but on the whole it was to Abraham that God said, you, from your family lineage, there will be a child that will be a blessing to the whole world. Now, I told you on the front of your brochure that there's a nation. There's, the Bible is the story of a nation. Well, here in Abraham, uh, with the, the story of Abraham, the nation gets its name. So Abraham had a grandson. And his name was Jacob. And in Genesis chapter 32, his, his name was changed to Israel. And that is the nation of the Old Testament, is the nation of Israel. And that's where Israel got its name. Jacob had 12 sons that became that, that nation. So the next thing for you uh, to fill out is the exodus from Egypt. Uh, the memorizing uh, phrase will be, God will make a way. The exodus from Egypt... The theme of that is God will make a way. When you read the book of uh, this section of the Bible, God's people had been uh, enslaved for 400 years within the borders of Egypt, treated horribly, and like you can imagine any slave, slavery condition would be. And God raised up a man named Moses to bring them out. He, he, he made a way where there was no way. Now, the, what we love about the story of Moses is, is listen, anytime God gets ready to do a new work, he looks for a man or woman to lead that work. It's always going to be he's looking for somebody. But before that man or woman is ready for that work, God normally breaks that man or woman before he uses them. He breaks us and then he uses us. And... He broke Moses. I love how D.L. Moody talks about the breaking of Moses. You can read the story later, but this is just a good summary statement. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. That's when he lived in the palace of Egypt. 40 years learning he was nobody in the wilderness. 
And then 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. And that's how God makes people that he uses greatly. He strips them of self-reliance. And he used Moses, but he did not use Moses until the 11th hour when it looked like the Israelites were going to be totally destroyed by Egypt. That's when Moses was raised up to do that. So just get used to the fact that God is, he's an on-time God. He's an on-time God, but that often means the 11th hour. Um, I want to tell you one thing very quickly. The book of Exodus, it got its name. Let me just tell you this. We're talking the books of the Bible and the Old Testament were written, were written to Hebrew people. They spoke Hebrew, but sometime before the time of Christ, about 400 years before Jesus came, the Jews were dispersed to the Greek-speaking parts of the Roman Empire and forgot how to speak Hebrew. So a Bible had to be written for them that they could understand. All they understood, Jewish people, all they understood was Greek. So the Septuagint is when 70 writers, that's septa, 70 writers got together, that's tradition, but the Septuagint's not, but the 70 writers is tradition, got together and translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And why this is interesting is you say, how did my, how do I have names at the top of every Bible book? That, they didn't come like that. They came when the Septuagint was written that the writers decided to take one word, one Greek word that would describe what the whole book was about. And ex hodas means the way out. That's how we get our, 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 our titles of our Bible books. Ex hodas. God, trust him. Trust him. In his time, he will make a way out. I remember I loved seminary when we were there. I had a friend named Steve. He was from Orangeburg, South Carolina. And none of us knew what that word was. And I could remember him in, ask, in, in Old Testament class asking, what, could you tell us about the Septuagint? It's called the Septuagint. But the, I love it. That's just prices. Could you tell us about the Septuagint? So Septuagint, or if you want to be like Steve, you can call it the Septuagint. All right. Giving of the law is the next uh, major division of the Old Testament. We'll call this holy, holy, holy. Because these are the books of the Bible, the section of the Bible, when God explains that he's different than any other person in the world um, and must be regarded as that by the way we live our lives. When you read the laws that God gave Israel during this time, you're going to think they're ridiculous. Food they could and couldn't eat, clothes they could and couldn't wear, and you say they're meaningless. They're obsolete, and in, a, and in a way we don't obey them like that, but the principle that emerges out of them is this. God was telling his people, you're surrounded by all these pagan nations, but even by the way you eat and even by the way you dress, you're to show that you are different because you worship a God who's so magnificently different. This is a foreign concept in the 21st century Church, that we live differently than the world. Supposed to. That's what, the, that's what this section of the Bible teaches us. We, we look different to show the world that God is wonderfully different. Wilderness wandering is the next section you can fill out. We'll call that an unnecessary detour. Wilderness wandering, unnecessary detour. 
The reason why it's an unnecessary detour is when God's people were enslaved in Egypt and he freed them, the distance from Egypt to the new land where he was taking them was 17 days journey. They turned it into a 40-year journey. 70 day, 17 days or 40 years. Have it your way. Get, you can go as fast or as slow as you want into the will of God. I had a friend. I was speaking several years ago at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And uh, I was telling a friend. He was a, uh, the campus director there. And I was just telling him. He said, how's life? I said, well, I feel like I'm sort of in a wilderness time of life. Just, I just feel I'm wandering. I just don't have direction. And he prayed for me. He said, Father, please eliminate from Richard's life anything that would cause him to stay wandering one more day than he has to. Sometimes you have to wander. Sometimes you don't. You could get out of the wandering if you would make a different decisions. But this part of the Bible teaches that sin always leads to unnecessary pain. We pray for these children, every baby dedication, protect them from unnecessary pain, unnecessary harm. That's what I'm praying. That You say, what are you praying when you pray that? That's what I'm praying, that they would not go through unnecessary wandering. So this section of the Bible teaches us the danger of doubting God, because that's why they wandered. Then the next section is the conquest of Canaan. And the, the little memory phrase will be that grace fuels effort. Conquest of grain, uh, Canaan. And the sort of the theme in that section is grace fuels, leads to, produces effort. If you read this section of the Bible, you'll see that God describes this new land no longer Egypt, now a new land that he's taking them to. He describes it as a land of milk and honey. Now, a lot of people think this, God just loves talking in pretty words. These are very, these are agricultural terms. The reason why he called it a land of milk and honey is because the, the rain was so good in this area of this promised land that he was giving to his people it rained so well, the, the grass grew so high, so thick, the cows ate so well, they produced great amounts of milk. And the rain fell so well on the flowers that the honeybees had endless supply to go and produce honey. So God gave his people an unbelievable place called the land of milk and honey. But the principle that I want you to understand is this was a free gift. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't earn it. But they did have to fight many battles to get into it. This is why this part of the Bible is so important. Because it teaches us salvation cannot be... This is how Dallas Willard said it. God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. If you try to earn your salvation, you're in the, reading the wrong book. But if you say, this is... Listen, for them to get in the land of milk and honey, they had to fight 31 different battles. So it takes effort to know God. It takes effort to stay in the will of God. This is what this part of the Bible teaches us. Look at the effort that's required, but it's fueled by grace. It's fueled by the gift. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's free. 
God saves you. It, the gift, it teaches you, it inspires you, it fuels you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives. Or, as Paul says, to live disciplined, to live disciplined lives. Next um, category, a cycle of rescue and rebellion, unkept promises. A cycle of rescue and rebellion, unkept promises, not, not unkept by God, unkept by His people. Uh, how many of you here, probably you don't have to raise your hand, but are, are guilty of, you know, of saying this, this hurt what I just did. Lord, please forgive me of that. I'll never do it again until the next time. <laughs> so this, is, this part of the Bible shows human nature to be so blessed and to be so rescued and yet to fall back into the cycle of sin over and over again. It's a very sad part of the Bible. It's rescue, rebellion, rescue, and rebellion. Listen, if you're part of a cycle of rescue and rebellion, don't give up. The message of God is never to give up on yourself because he certainly hasn't. But it is the message of the Bible. This is very painful if you continue to live in this cycle, riding the sin cycle down the same path. So learn from this painful part of biblical history and say, Oh, Holy Spirit, give me breakthrough from the cycle of rescue and rebellion. Give me breakthrough, Holy Spirit, from the cycle of rescue and rebellion. The next uh, segment of the Bible is uh, called the, uh, the Rise and Fall of Israel. And the theme there would be follow the leader. Because really this is just the story of all the different kings of Israel. There were many, many kings. And every time there was a good one, man, the people loved God. Every time there was a corrupt, corrupt one, all of the people went crazy corrupt, which is a reminder, as the lead, leaders are, so the people will be, which should be a, a great message to you if you're a parent, your child is watching, you're the leader, you're the leader in your neighborhood, neighbors are watching, leader at work, employees are watching, if you have any position of influence, which you do, you are influencing people to follow what you're following. This is very important. Now, the most important leader in, of all the kings in this section is King David. God made four covenants in the Old Testament. One of them was to this guy. Four like agreements. I'm going to do this. To this guy, King David, he said, David, I'm going to give you a son and one day, I mean, you know, a son like made to be down the road, but I'm going to give you a descendant that he's going to be a king whose kingdom will last, my favorite Bible word, forever. That was the promise. So that's why when you read the New Testament and you see Jesus Christ called the son of David, it goes back to this, Jesus is the fulfillment of that, of that promise. The destruction of Jerusalem, we'll just call that tears because of all those corrupt leaders. They didn't listen to God. 
And Jerusalem was destroyed by an army um, of the Babylonians. And there, there's some little numbers to the right of your, there's a column to the, to the, to the right of your fill in blanks. That's just sort of a Bible timeline that will sort of help you remember when all these events took place. I mean, this event happened to really take place at 587 B.C., but I know that because I'm a nerd and I love dates. <laughs> but you could just sort of see on that timeline, around five or 600, they got wiped out. And if, listen, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian army, burned to the ground, that's an 80, in today's terms, that's an $80 billion building burned because it's made of gold. And you could just imagine the beauty of the Taj Mahal, and any of us who've had the privilege of seeing it in India, it just, it's, not the, it's the prettiest architectural structure I've ever seen in my life. And I just can imagine what it would look like if it was destroyed and the sorrow that would come to a nation. That's what the people of Israel were feeling. Their building, their center of worship was, was destroyed. So that leads us to the last section of the Old Testament, the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem. The rebuilding of Jerusalem. And that's hope. When the people left Jerusalem, they thought they would never return. And again, you can look at Jerusalem today. God did bring his people back. Now in five minutes, in the remaining five minutes, we're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to make it through the New Testament. So there you go. The birth of Christ is the ultimate house call. The birth of Christ, God came. Christmas means God cared enough to come into my world. Christmas means God cared enough to feel the way I feel. I love the picture from Jesus of Nazareth, the baby born, God in a manger. How much does God love you enough to come into your world? Second phase in the New Testament is the life of Christ. We'll just call this truth, love, and power. He he spoke the truth. He lived the truth. He loved sinners. He loved God. And his life was powerful. He had power over disease, power over demons, power over death. Was, I love his life. I love the life of Jesus Christ. Then the death and resurrection of Christ. We'll call this trading places. The death of Christ trading places. And so whenever you think about Christ, you want to think about the cross, of course. We try to do that a lot here. And a theme that you can remember for the cross is he got what I deserved, judgment, so I could get what he deserved, honor. Jesus got what I deserved, judgment, so I could get what he deserved, honor. Then that leads us to the next section, fill in the blank, the birth of the church. I had a little fun with this, earth, wind, and fire is a theme for that. Fifty days after Jesus resurrected from the dead, a celebration was called, uh, held in Jerusalem called Pentecost. That's why Pentecost means 50. And at that Pentecost celebration, the Holy Spirit came down just like this on a group of 120 people who were praying, gathering for church. And the power was so great, the Bible describes it. It looks like they were touched by wind and fire. Nothing more, nothing more powerful in the life than, uh, in the world than fire except when wind hits it. So power changed them, and they became great, great witnesses for Christ all over Jerusalem. 
Next section of the New Testament is the conversion of Paul. The theme of that is no one is unreachable. I bet everybody in their life right now can think of somebody that you almost have put in the unreachable category. I do. I have somebody in my life like that. My flesh wants to say they're unreachable. They're not. Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. God turned him from a murderer to a missionary. (laughs) Unbelievable. No one is unreachable. Then we go to the next section, the journeys and writings of Paul. World-changing words. It's amazing. I've already quoted the Apostle Paul today and how interesting it is that he wrote something 2,000 years ago that I would be speaking about today. He changed the world with his words and his writing. You ought to read the book, please, Why I Love the Apostle Paul by John Piper. What a book. Makes you grateful that Paul wrote. And final, finally in the New Testament, it ends with John's exile and vision of the future. It's revelation. Revelation triumph. Revelation triumph. The reason why we love the book of Revelations is because we see two things happening. Jesus wins, and because we're clinging to Jesus, we win. It's important that you get that order. He wins, and because we're holding on for dear life, we win. Jesus wins, we win. Look who loses in the book of Revelation. All governments lose. All media lose. All cultural movements lose. Jesus and his church wins. My favorite movie line of all times comes at the end of the movie Gladiator, which Russell Crowe starred in it. Um, In that, he plays General Maximus, who was commander of the Northern Armies. And I can just hear him saying that now. General Maximus, commander of the northern armies, he reported to Marcus Aurelius, who was the dying old emperor of Caesar, uh, Caesar of, of Rome, ruler of Rome. So General Maximus reports to Aurelius, but Aurelius was so sick that his son Commodus had taken over. Commodus, in order to spite um, General Maximus, killed his wife, children, and took his land turned him into a prisoner. That's how he became a gladiator. And one day in the Roman Colosseum, the gladiator meets Caesar. And Caesar, or the new Caesar, the, the wannabe Caesar, meets, meets Commodus. And Commodus basically says, what are you going to do about what I did to your family? And I love that line by, by Russell Crowe, General Maximus at that time. The time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. That is the message in the book of Revelation to the world. Jesus told the people who arrested him and nailed him to a cross, this is your hour when darkness reigns. So the world has one hour for all of its immoral pleasures and all of its sinful power. So if you belong to the world, enjoy that you only have that for one hour, but in eternity you'll experience no pleasure. One hour of power or eternity of pleasure. That's the book of Revelation. Now, if I've gone too fast, which I have, we're going to put on the website this afternoon a 24-page fill-in-the-blank of 
a single paragraph description of every book of the Bible. We wrote it, and it's going to go on, be online by 2 or 3 o'clock. And, and also uh, about a four-page document of how I go at a biblical passage, how do I study the Bible, what kind of questions do I ask when I'm reading a Bible passage. I think you'll find it interesting of maybe a better way to read a passage, a better way to ask questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your story. Thank you that we are included in your story. Lord, we thank you that it makes sense. You are getting your people home. You're bringing them to the wedding. They are, they've been invited to sit down at your table because you're their father and they are your sons and daughters. And through trials, through temptations, through our failures and our doubt, Lord, through the world's attacks, through nature, disease, and demonic oppression, all the powers of darkness are trying to stop you. And day after day, you bring your people home. You are the great promise keeper. And we thank you, O oh God, that you will get us home. I pray, Lord, you would inspire us to believe more than ever that you've written a book because it teaches us how to get home and what home is like. Jesus, we thank you for purchasing a home for us in heaven, for taking away the sin that would disqualify us, giving us the righteousness that does qualify us, so we can walk through the gates, walk through the front door, sit down at the table, and be home. It's in your name I joyfully, confidently, based on the word of God, pray. Amen.